Well, let's open a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you that we can gather here in this place. And uh, we pray that you would help us to understand um, the 10 verses that we're looking at tonight in Judges chapter 6. And Father, there's always um, consequences to our actions. And we see that tonight in this text. And we just pray that you would uh, open our eyes to see your truth and apply it to our hearts and pray for those that are here and also those that aren't that you would bless them as well we thank you and praise in jesus name amen well tonight we're not going to look at another judge because there's no judge in this text yet we are introduced to the next judge gideon but we'll look at uh him next week but tonight i want to look at the first 10 verses of judges chapter 6 and uh, we're going to be talking about the high cost of low living. <laughs> There's always a cost, isn't there? So you can follow along in your Bibles as I read Judges chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. It says, the, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of, the, of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east, all the other ites, (laughs) would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or donkey or ox. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord didn't send a judge this time, sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppress you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Sad commentary for Israel. (laughs) They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And as you look through this, this is the clear pattern that develops. We're going to hear it many, many more times. Um, They would serve the Lord as long as they had a strong leader with them. And as soon as the leader was gone, they fell back into their own old ways, their sin, sinful behavior. And when they sinned, God used the people who were surrounding them, the pagan nations living around them, to actually chastise them, to discipline them. And so he allowed their enemies to afflict and to oppress Israel and showed them that there's always a cost in disobeying the Lord. 
But here in chapter 6, we're introduced to the next judge. His name is Gideon. And we'll look at this next week. But when Gideon appears, um, he is very <coughs> unlikely candidate to be a judge. Uh, his name means he who cuts down. Uh, but we see in verse 11, if you look forward, that he's hiding out, out of fear from Israel's enemies. He was guilty of fearfulness. He was guilty of faithlessness. But you know what? He was used by God. He was God's choice to be the next judge of Israel. And God used him in in an incredible way, we're going to find out. And just before we look into the, the life of Gideon, we're going to look at this text before us tonight and just it, it really uh, uh, shows us the cost of disobeying the Lord. And it it's kind of sets the stage for the ministry of, of Gideon in Israel. And it holds some powerful lessons for us as well. So the high cost of low living. Um, what we're going to see tonight is whenever we practice disobedience as God's children, there's always, always, always a higher price, a higher cost than we would ever want to pay. And so we want to look at this tonight. So the first thing we see here um, in verse 1 is this routine, right? This cycle of sin. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, We don't know what their um, specific sin was this time, but we can assume that it was the same sin we see back in chapter 2, verse 19. 219, it says, But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. So they would, God would raise up a judge. He would take them, you know, three, four, five steps forward. And as soon as the judge was gone, um, it says that they became more corrupt than the previous generation. They were going after other gods. It tells us in verse 19, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So they, they were just very stubborn. And then also in chapter 3, Judges 3, 5 to 7, it tells us, So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites and all these other ites, and their daughters took to themselves wives, for why they, they were taken for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Israel served their gods, uh, the, all, the, all the pagan gods. And so they were, they were prone <laughs> to walk in a very foolish way over and over and over again. They were guilty of falling into the same trap, you might say. And so they were surrounded. God strategically placed Israel in this, in this part of the land where they were surrounded by these pagan nations. It wasn't the Bible Belt by any means. It wasn't like you're living down in Georgia or somewhere like that. It's like you're living right here in the Bay Area and you're surrounded by all this liberalism that we see all around us. And uh, they were continually, these pagan nations were continually trying to draw Israel out. They were trying to draw them away from God and into their own wicked way of life. And that's, that's basically what uh, a sinful society does. You're never going to hear someone who is, is uh, not a Christian, not one who practices Ju- Judeo-Christian values. You're never going to hear them... 
come to you as a person of faith and say, wow, you know what? I, I really want to become more uh, like you in practice. Outside of the God's intervention, they're, they're happy in their sin. And the Bible even tells us in the New Testament, there are people that are not only happy in their sin, they're celebrating their sin, and they uh, really worship their own sin. And so they're trying to get everybody else to, to buy into that. And that's what makes it so hard when you have to stand up against the tide of the culture and everything and say, no, enough is enough. I'm not, I'm not going to go there. Uh, then you're criticized for being in, intolerant or whatever. But that's what Israel was. They were continually trying to fight against this temptation to give in. And as long as they had a strong leader, a strong judge leading them, they were able to live in a righteous way before God. And whenever the leadership failed or, or died, they went right back to their own, own practices of wandering away from the Lord. And they became weak, and they were this vacillating group of people that had trouble staying on course with the Lord. Now, we don't want to be too hard on Israel, right? <laughs> because we're all here tonight looking at our own hearts, going, yeah, there, there go I, right? Uh, we all have the same problem with sin. None of us have conquered sin completely. Every one of us deals with certain areas in our lives where there's areas of weakness. We're prone to sin, and we don't just sin there once. Sometimes it's, it's multiple times over and over, and you feel, you feel bad. You go back to the Lord, Lord, forgive me again. Maybe your anger, maybe your thought life, maybe whatever. But we all have those areas of weakness. And see, there are areas in our own lives where we seem to be in this constant battle, this constant struggle for righteous behavior. And that's, we, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised. In Hebrews, all the way in the New Testament, chapter 12, verse 1, it tells us there, therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he says, let us lay aside every weight. Lay it aside. Why? Because you're in a race. It's, it's, it's the imagery of a race. You don't run a race with ankle weights on. You take the weights off, right? You wouldn't want weights on when you're running a race. It says you lay aside every weight. And then it says this, and sin which clings so closely, or some translations say so easily beset us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And those words, cling so closely or easily beset us, what it means is to skillfully surround someone. Skillfully surround. Uh, and, and our flesh loves sin. It loves sin. Now our spirit hates it. But our flesh craves it. And so the enemy basically surrounds us with all kinds of sinful desires and sinful behaviors and all this stuff. And we, we're in our flesh and we're looking at this. Our enemy, Satan, is a shrewd enemy. He knows our weaknesses. He knows when to uh, draw us out, just like the enemies of Israel did. He knows who to entice and how to entice them and draw them away into evil. Another verse in the New Testament, Paul writes in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, he's talking to Timothy as a kind of a young servant, and he says in verse 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Enduring evil. 
not participating in evil. In other words, there's evil all around, and you have to endure through that. And then he says this in verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. I love that verse because it shows us that repentance is something that you cannot do without God's direct intervention. You know, we, sometimes we'll tell people, you just need to repent. Well, they can't. That doesn't mean we don't tell them to. But they can't do it on their own. Uh, would God grant them the grace to allow them to repent? Repentance is what? It's a change of mind. It's a change of direction. The only way that can happen is if God directly intercedes in somebody's life. Now, people try to do it. You know, they try to turn over a new leaf. They try to you know, lay out a new set of behaviors. Okay, I'm going to be this way. I'm going to do this. I'm going to change this. I'm not going to be mean to people anymore. I'm not going to do this. And they try to do it, and they try to do it in the flesh. And it's never successful. That's why, you know, you don't hear much about the New Year's resolutions when it comes around this time, right? February, March. Most of them are long gone forgotten. So repentance, a change of mind, a change of heart is something God grants. But look at what it says. Leading to the knowledge of the truth. And, verse 26, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Our enemy, Satan, lays a trap for us because, and he knows how to do it, because he knows what makes us tick. He, he studies us better than we study ourselves, I'm afraid. And so we just have to be reminded of that, that even though these Israel was doing this over and over and over again, we think, wow, why don't these guys get it together? We have the same problem. We have the same issues in our own life. As a matter of fact, in James chapter 1, verse 12, James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And then it says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Don't even say that. Why? Because it's impossible. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Period. End of story. But each person, it says, is tempted, verse 14, when he is lured, kind of, you got the imagery, right? Kind of a fisher, you got, a, you got this hook and it's baited and the hook is hidden and the fish is, what are you doing? You're, you're trying to lure that fish in to bite your hook. He is lured and enticed. He's enticed by what? By his own desire, it says. By his own desire that comes from his own flesh. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin and, when, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And then he says in verse 16, Paul writes, or James writes, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So he's talking to believers. And we, we have to be reminded that, yeah, Satan is a defe- defeated foe. That's true. But he is still a foe. And we still have to contend with him daily. That's why we're in a spiritual battle. And every person, I don't care who you are, has those areas of, of their lives that cause you problems, that cause you trouble. There are areas where you are weak. Nobody here can say, nope, I've conquered every sin. 
I, I walk completely holy every day, righteous. I don't sin is not even an issue in my life. If you're saying that, I know sin is an issue, and one of the sins that you have is lying. <laughs> because that's not true. It can't be true, because you're not perfect. And so there are these areas. Some have issues with, you know, their language. Uh, sometimes, you know, people are saved out of a very salty background, and they get, they get saved, and sometimes one of the last things to change is their language. You know, they still let those bombs slip once in a while. Or some people have problems with stubbornness or um, an unwillingness to submit to authority. Some have problems with gossip or sensual or sexual sin or alcohol or drugs or whatever it might be. We all struggle in different areas. And you know the area that you're weak in. And you know that given the right circumstances at the right time, you will have a horrific time overcoming that temptation. And that's basically what was going on with Israel. They kept on repeating the same thing over and over again. Well, there's a couple steps that you can take that will help you with your fight against sin, because that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about a battle that goes on. And the first one there, I think they're in your outline, yeah, do not play near the trap. It says that Satan is trying to snare us, right? Uh, the best way around that is stay away from the trap. Stay, stay away from the danger. Uh, if you know that there's an area of danger in your life, stay away from that danger. Don't go there. There are, I, I talked to one gentleman one time. He was, this is, this is at a, a different church, but he was having issues with thought life and pornography and all this stuff. And he just couldn't, every week, it was like, I, I fell again, you know. And after a while, I realized there's this pattern developing. Like, you know, Wednesday night, he was all, the Bible said he was all gung-ho. And, and then somewhere between Thursday and Friday, because we'd meet on Saturday morning, he would have an issue of he'd fall. And so finally, I, I got to talking to him. I said, tell me what you do. What's your week look like? Well, I work every day. And I said, okay, well, what, what's your work day look like? And we started dialing this down. And what I found out was on Thursday, after work was over, he would stop by just to get a soda at a liquor store. Because it was just on his way home. It was kind of a convenient liquor store. And it was right there. And, uh, and when he was telling me this, he goes, I probably shouldn't, he just kind of mumbled under his, I probably shouldn't even be going in there. And I'm like, why? Well, and this was behind the counter. They had all these magazines, I guess, and whatever. And here's a guy that's struggling in this area. And yet every week he's walking into the trap. And then he's scratching his head like, yeah, I don't know why I can't conquer this. I'm like, just go to a different store. Who cares if it's 15 minute drive out of your way? And, and that's the thing. You, you can't play near the trap. Remember what happened with Joseph, right? Stay away from danger. Uh, Genesis 39, 12, it says, She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and he fled and got out of the house. Second um, Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul says, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, Love and peace, along with those 
who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So we should be running away from these things, not running to them. Or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. Paul says, give no opportunity to the devil. Period. Don't give any opportunity, because if you do, you're going to lose. That's the implication there. Satan is out to get you. So what's he saying? Keep your distance. You know, um, when you go to the zoo and all the animals are behind the, the cages right, or the glass thing or whatever. I mean, you can walk right up and you're not scared. But if that thing was just right in front of you, you probably wouldn't be walking right up to it. You'd probably be, wow, I'm getting out of here. Why? Because you know you're going to be putting yourself in harm's way. And see, we have to think of Satan as somebody who's not in a cage. I mean, he's running around. God has given him kind of free reign here on this earth under God's sovereign hand. And so it tells us that. First uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 8 tells us, be sober-minded. In other words, you've got to stay alert. Don't be you know, half, half asleep in the middle of a war. Uh, even, even guys that, you know, in the military that go to war, they're on the front lines, and they haven't slept in 36 hours. But you know what? When those bombs start going off, it doesn't matter. They're alert. Why? They have to be, or it's their life. So this is the same scenario. Be sober-minded. Be watchful, he says in 1 Peter 5.8. Well, why? Why, should, why is that so important? Because your adversary, your enemy, the one who's out to get you, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. This is a lion who hasn't eaten. It's looking for something to eat. It's somebody, a lion whose stomach is growling. And it doesn't matter whether it's a mouse or a man, it's going to eat it. Because it's hungry. Seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, 9 says, Resist him firm in your faith. See, it's not that we can't stand against the devil. We can. In, in the Spirit's power. But, you know, I'm not out looking, looking for the devil every day. You know, you hear some of these word of faith teachers and they think that you know they can take on the devil with one hand tied behind their back and all they got to do is bind them and then that's it you know boy i just told satan oh yeah okay aren't you some big spiritual giant they don't have that much strength when the devil tempts them with finances or immorality or whatever when they end up falling they don't they don't come back and say, oh yeah i, I beat the devil No, the devil beat them because they were not paying attention. Um, So don't play near the trap. Secondly, look for avenues of escape. This is very biblical. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We know this verse. No temptation overtaking you. That is not common to man. God is always faithful. He'll provide a way. He He won't let you be tempted beyond what you're able. He'll always provide a way out. Okay, a way of escape that you may be able to endure. You don't have to give in to it. Temptation is not the sin. Do you understand that? Temptation is not the sin. I had someone close to me tell me one time that, you know, they were sorry for something. And I said, well, wow, what did you do? 
Well, I really didn't do anything, but I was just thinking of doing it. <laughs> and I thought, that's not a bad idea as far as being careful, uh, but the temptation to do something is not the sin. That's why James tells us that you know, when you give in to the sin, and you know, it goes on from there. Uh, God will make a way out of our temptations, but we have to choose it. We have to be able to use that, that way out. And the problem is there's a lot of even believers that, frankly, are in love with their sin. <laughs> they don't want a way out. And they take it, well, you know what, I'm not hurting anybody, and, you know, this is my little secret, and, well, you know what, God knows. And you should be grieved in your heart that God is seeing you, watching you, partake in something that's not honoring to him, whether it's a thought, whether it's an action, whether it's motivation, whatever it might be. We need to get all that out there. Well, the third thing that you can do is not just not play near the trap or look for an avenue of escape, but thirdly, learn to consider yourself dead to sin and its influences. That's our, that's our position in Christ, right? We are, we are dead to sin. We're supposed to be dead to sin. Don't buy into the theology that says, well, now you're a Christian, you have you know, the old nature and you have the new nature and they're battling it out and who knows who's going to win. No, the Bible says that when, when Christ died, because you're in Christ, you died with Christ. And God gave you a new nature. Uh, so we need to consider ourselves biblically dead to sin. In other words, when you're a Christian for the first time in your life, you actually have the opportunity to walk away from sin and do the right thing and it, in a way that is honoring to God. Now, before that, you may be able to resist the temptation, but it wasn't really honoring to God because you were just doing it in your own flesh. But now you have the Spirit of God, and when you yield to the Spirit of God in your life, that is pleasing to God himself. You're glorifying God. Uh, Romans 6.11 says, so you, must, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is a major problem with a lot of believers. They're not taught some basic theology, so they don't understand their position, who they are in Christ. And so they're, they're constantly waffling in their own faith because they have no idea that they're dead to sin. They just think it's up to them to defeat it every day. They have no idea that God had made them alive in Christ Jesus, that he gave them a spirit that resides within them, that they don't have to choose to sin. And so, that's why he says, so you also must consider. That's that, that, that word consider in the original language is a, a accounting term. You're actually sitting down and you're studying, okay, how is this working out? You know, when's the last time you sat down and you studied what Christ actually did for you? What he accomplished for you? That's a very good study to have because it, it keeps fresh in our mind that, you know what? Yeah, our enemy is a defeated foe. I mean, I, I don't want to go out and play in the same playground as Satan. But you know what? I'm not going to cower in fear either. Or Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. Paul says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you're hidden with Christ in God. I kind of think of that as, 
I mean, it doesn't really add up theologically, but if you've ever seen those little boxes or the little eggs, you keep on opening them up, and there's one inside the other, and you know, just that's kind of what it's like. I mean, we are hid in Christ, with Christ in God, it says. And when Christ, who is your life, verse 4, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words, this is not a, well, this might happen, if you defeat sin long enough, oh, maybe if you, you know, if you, if you don't give in to temptation anymore, this might happen. No, he's talking to believers here, and he's saying this is, this is a statement of fact. This is a statement of fact. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. What a wonderful thing. Well, what happens between here and glory? Probably a lot. Maybe some things we don't like. Maybe some trials and turmoil and suffering but what's the purpose of that the purpose of god allowing that in our lives is to what to prepare us prepare us for that time with him in glory and that's really what he's doing verse 5 says put to death therefore what is earthly in you ephesians or colossians 3 5 put to death therefore what is earthly in you and he gives a list, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, put it to death. And I go back to that book by John Owen, The Mortification of, the, you know, the, uh, of Sin. The Mortification of Sin. You have to kill sin every day in your life. If you don't, it will be killing you, he says. That's how seriously we need to understand this. That's why... It's, it's so serious when we're out in the world and we're interacting with people. Okay, we don't want our behavior perceived as being sinful. We want to be honoring to the Lord. We're not going to be perfect by any means. And we all fail in, in a myriad of ways, and that's where God's grace comes in. But we have to consider ourselves dead to sin and its influences. For the first time, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can say, nope, I'm not going to take the bait. I'm out of here. I'm not going to go there. Satan, no. And you can have victory over sin. To assert, As long as you're yielding to the Spirit of Christ, you will have victory. The only time we don't have victory and we sin is when we take back control of our lives from the Spirit of Christ, who's living through us, and we're saying, hey, I don't, I'm going to do it my way. Or I want to go do this, and I don't care what God's word says. And then the next thing here is determine in your heart to serve God and him only. This was a problem with Israel. If they would have just listened to God when he said, look, I just want you all to myself. I mean, you're not talking about another human here. You're talking about a deity that created you. He wants, him, he wants our hearts completely his. Romans 6.13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, Paul says, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought, have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. See, we're not to present our members, our bodies, for sinful behavior. That's not acceptable as his child. But we should be saying, hey, God, how do you want to use me? You know, you're the one that brought me from death to life. I, I want to be used for your righteousness. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, 
whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Well, what was the price? What were we bought with? It's, it's the blood of Christ, right? Christ sacrificed on our behalf. Really, his own righteousness and gave it to us freely. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. See, sin is a constant problem for every one of us as believers, as a saint of the Lord Jesus Christ, as a follower of Christ. It's always going to be that way here, this side of glory. But it doesn't have to dominate and control your life. It doesn't. Whereas before, that's all it did. Uh, We can have victory through our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Romans 6.14 says, and God raised the Lord, and guess what? He will also raise up us by his power. So this is a promise that God gives us. And so you see that they had this sin that they embraced, Israel, and they just kept on doing it over and over, and we're going to get sick of reading it after a while, but it's a, it's a reminder to us that, hey, we're the same way. We're the same way. Second point here tonight is look at the suffering that they endured. And we'll get out of verse 1 here finally. Um, The suffering that they endured. In verses 1 through 6, basically, when we read those, it really tells us the, the terrible price that Israel had to pay for their own unrighteousness, their own foolishness, their own sinning against God. And what they, they suffered really should serve to show us, you know what, these are very real and painful consequences. Uh, they didn't get away with it. You know, some, t- some people think, well, we can, you know, hide our sin or we could, we'll get away with it. No, you'll never get away with it. We might think no one will ever find out. But the truth is, God already knows. (laughs) So everybody else is kind of irrelevant at that point. Would you agree? In his time, though, I think when it's persistent, he will expose it for what it is. We saw a very real illustration of this lately, this last several months, right, with a very well-known apologist. His sins came home to roost. Unfortunate. But that's how serious this is. Numbers, chapter 32, verse 23 says, But if, if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. In other words, if you won't be obedient to God, you've sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers thirty-two twenty-three says. Or in Luke 12, verses 1 to 3, it says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were trampling on one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So this is Jesus teaching his, his disciples. And then in verse 2, he says this, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And he's speaking of the Pharisees, and the reason he's using the Pharisees here is because they were uh, they were putting themselves out as these religious people, right? With their robes and their fine garments and their well-spoken people and very, you know, um, 
looked up to probably in the society in which they lived as religious leaders. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't let that deceive you. Yeah, they're just coming up, covering up with all that garb what's really going on in their own heart. And it will be known. Verse 3 says, Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So it's very important that we realize that, you know, it, this was kind of, uh, brought home to us when we went to India one time and we went through Dubai and the first time we landed in Dubai the taxi cab driver was telling us about how things worked in Dubai and all this and he mentioned at one point I, I said I said why well, I don't see a lot of police around he said they don't need police he goes just look at every intersection look on top of the poles he goes just so you know there's cameras everywhere and he goes, and I mean everywhere. <laughs> and he kind of emphasized it. And I'm like, oh, what do you mean by that? It was kind of unnerving, right? <laughs> I mean, but it was true. They watch everything. Everything. And see, we, for, we forget sometimes. We think we're getting away with something. But you know what? Someone's listening. Someone's, you know, have you ever made a pocket call? And you're talking. <laughs> And maybe you're not having the best conversation about whatever. That's not good, right? You're like, oh my gosh, my phone's on. Oh no, what do they hear? You know. Uh, or if you're in an area where there's cameras or security, you know, you just got to be, be careful. I worked at a job one time in a warehouse and they had security cameras and we didn't know it. We were complaining about our boss in the break room. And he called us and he got a problem. No, why, sir? What do you, you know? Well, I heard what you were saying. You know, he repeated everything. It wasn't that bad. So he didn't, you know, you just got to be careful, you know? So it's very important that we realize that. Well, let's examine what Israel endured because of their sin. And uh, as we do, I think we have to remind ourselves that the same judgment or worse even could fall upon us if we fail to live for the Lord. First of all, they, they suffered invasion in verses 1 and 2. It says there that the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and caves and the strongholds. So what's going on here? Israel was oppressed. They were invaded by the Midianites. God used their enemy to prove a point, to make a point. And the Midianites, who were they? They were descendants of Abraham, just like the Israelis were. Uh, they descended from a man named Midian, and Midian was the son of Abraham and uh, Keturah. You can read that in, in Genesis chapter 25. And Abraham married Keturah after, after Sarah had died. And so the, the Midianites appear from time to time throughout the scriptures. Moses married a Midianite um, named Zipporah after he fled from Egypt in Exodus 2.21. In the book of Numbers, Numbers 25, you see the Midianites were uh, counseled by uh, Balaam to seduce the Israel, Israelite men. And turn their hearts toward idols, and it, and it worked. 
and over 24,000 Israelites died as a result of that. Uh, so the word Midian, what does it mean? <clears throat> it means strife. It means strife. The, the Midianites are a clear picture of conflict in the world around us. And I'm just talk, not talking physical contact, conflict. I'm talking spiritual conflict as well. Uh, and it's, it's the world around us that has an issue with the truth of God that we are called to believe and obey. And the Midianites are really a picture of the corrupt world. That's how you could view that. And their desire to draw the people of God away from God. That's what the world wants. The world wants you to become more worldly, not more spiritual. That's the goal. So whether it's through advertising, whether it's through TV or movies or music or whatever, the goal is to draw you away from God, not to encourage you to walk with God. You see, the only reason that the Midianites here had any power over the people of God was because the people of God were, what, unfaithful to the Lord. And God allowed that to take place. Their sin, think of it this way, they had a wall of protection around them. God's wall of protection is around every believer. But here, in this case, their sin lowered the wall of separation between them and the world. Israel got into trouble because they refused to walk with the Lord on a daily basis. And the same thing can happen to any one of us. When we refuse to stay close to the Lord and live according to his world and his, or his word and his principles, um, we're also opening up this door of possible affliction in our lives when things aren't going well. Um, a lot of times... These afflictions arise out of stupid decisions we make because we're not consulting God's word as we make these decisions. We're just doing it on our own. Um, and a lot of times our, our sinful, sinfulness translates into weakness. And that's what happened with Israel. The more they sinned, the weaker they became. Uh, and it invited, what, the enemies of, of righteousness to attack them. They said, hey, these Israel, the people of God down there, look at what they're doing. Man, they're so far gone. Let's just go down and take whatever we want. And that's exactly what happened. See, our weaknesses often result in our being invaded, being attacked, being overrun by the world. That's why sometimes you can actually have a believer who is just completely messed up spiritually. They're still a believer, but they, they, have, they have lowered the wall of protection due to their misbehavior and their sinfulness to the point where God says, okay, you know what? That's what you want. I'm just going to let you have it. And it's tough to watch. So we see here that, first of all, they suffered invasion. Secondly, they suffered imprisonment, verse 2. The oppression of Israel by the Midianites resulted in Israel losing its will to fight. Instead of, instead of doing what God had called them to do, stand against their enemies, what were they doing? It says there in verse 2, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves dens that are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. So they, they didn't stay and fight for the land that was theirs. What did they do? They ran up into the hills. They were fearful. They ran away like little weak-kneed 
sinners that they were. And they hid in the mountains. They were probably peeking out of the, their caves, watching their enemy come up and just overrun their land. What a horrible place to be in. Their sin made them weak. It caused them to lose their will to fight, and it left them utterly defeated, almost hollowed out, you might say. And that's what happens to someone, even a believer, when sin is allowed to reign in your life. You get to the point where you just feel so worthless and so so useless, like God could never, ever use you again. Here you are, a child of God, but you've given into sin so much that, you know, pretty soon you don't even go to church anymore. You don't, it just, it doesn't end well. Sin robs us of our character. It leaves us unwilling and unable to fight. And see, when we allow a sinful and sinful behavior and sin to reign in our hearts, we become listless, we become lifeless, lethargic, you might say, in our Christian life. And sin will cause you to hide away in fear while the enemy takes everything that you value. That's exactly what happened to Israel. There are people, even in this small room, probably, that, that have been imprisoned by their sins. You've allowed certain actions and ways of living to dominate you and you know what? You've lost your ability to fight against it. You've lost your ability to even have any kind of will against it at all. You've given up. You're a prisoner in your own life. And you hide in fear from your actions that you can't control. I mean, it's just the opposite. The reality is just the opposite, is it not, for a believer? The Bible says that Jesus has the power, and he has done so as a follower of Christ, he has set you free. Isn't that what John 8, 36 says? So if the Son sets you free, you will be free, what? Indeed. But you can't hide in fear of your own sin and expect to enjoy the Lord's freedom. It doesn't work that way. You'll feel like you're imprisoned. To be free, you have to deal with your own sin. First of all, you have to confess it. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. You can't conceal your sin. That's never good. But he who confesses and forsakes their sin will obtain mercy. Remember what mercy is. Mercy is God withholding what we deserve. We deserve his judgment, but you know what? Because we went to him and we confessed it and we forsook our sin, he's withholding his judgment from us. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, or since we confess our sins as Christians, that's how it should read, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is so gracious, but you have to repent of it. Luke 13.5 says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And remember, like I just said, the only way that we can truly have repentance that's, that's pleasing to the Lord is by His Spirit. By His Spirit. You can't change your own heart. God has to do that for you. But you have to forsake your sin. Then you can be free. But you have to be proactive about it. You, you, you can't be defensive. You have to be proactive. It's not going to happen just by itself. 
If you have an issue of sin in your life, you're not going to wake up one day if you don't do anything about it, and then all of a sudden, magically, it's just going to be gone. It's not going to happen. Well, the third thing here is they suffered impoverishment, verses 3 to 6. Um, verse, verse 6 there, it, it tells us that Israel was brought very low. That's the word that for impoverishment, really. It means to make slack or feeble. It comes from the same root word. I thought this was interesting. That, that's used when you see a bucket dangling on the end of a rope. Just kind of just dangling around. It has no, no control over anything. It's just, it's just there. Okay, that's, that's the idea. And so you become somebody who is just helpless, hopeless in your Christian walk. It's a picture of people at the very end of themselves. They, they can't even lift their head. And I've met Christians like that. I mean, they can't pray. They can't come to church. They're so shameful. There's just their life is just in despair. See, Israel had everything that they appreciated and they loved taken away from them by their enemy. Why? Because of their sin. I mean, they were an agrarian society, so they had their crops. Verse 3, it says, and what would happen? They would plant all their crops. You know, that's hard work, right? Farming, that's tough. Can you imagine doing all that and then having enemies come in and then you've got to run back up into your caves and then you just watch the enemies pick all your fruit that you just grew or whatever it might have been, the wheat or whatever, and then just leave everything devastated and all the work that you put into it? And this was a planned event. This, was, this wasn't something, you know, they did this over and over and over, it says, for several years. And you can see how deceived they were in their own sinfulness. They saw all, verse 4, they saw all their livestock taken away. So they not only had no vegetables to eat, they had no meat to eat either. I mean, they were completely wiped out. That's why it says they were left with no sustenance. They were literally made weak. And it was the enemies who physically did this, but guess what? It was God, right, who gave them into the hand of these enemies to do exactly this. They were literally at the end of their rope. Everything they valued was taken from them. Everything they needed to sustain life was gone. They were left with absolutely nothing. And see, what the message here for us is that's what sin does. That's what sin does. It strips us of everything that we value. It strips us of everything that we live for. And it leaves us just weak, need, slack, at the end of the rope, just like an empty bucket you know, in the wind. If you choose to live your life under the control of sin, do not be surprised when you see things around you that you value and maybe you love taken from you. Some people have chosen sin over a spouse and as a result their marriage is gone. Some people try to raise their children to be the best have the best, do the best. But they fail to teach them to love the Lord at the very basic level. And usually, it's lost cause. Some people live for material things, forgetting that 
all the material things that we have are transient, they're just here for a temporary basis. And when they end this life, they have nothing. Some people are caught up in getting their own way all the time. And they forget to get their own way all the time. They have to step on the feelings and needs of people all around them. And there's going to come a time when those people look around and they're all by themselves and they wonder why. See, it's, it's what we're investing in, right? That's, that's what God is interested in. Don't invest in anything but what God's Word tells us to invest in. And Jesus pays dividends that will bless us. But if we invest in things that he tells us not to invest in, then you know what? There's dividends too, but we don't want those dividends. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 8 tells us this. Do not be deceived, Paul says. God is not mocked. We know this verse. For whatever one sows, whatever you put in the ground, that's what's going to come out. That will he also reap. Verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What are you sowing? That's the question. And it's an eternal question. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, Jesus points this out. He says, don't lay up for your treasures here on, uh, don't lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure where? In heaven, where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he closes in verse 21 Matthew 6, he says, for where your treasure is. What's he saying? Is your, if your treasure's here on earth, well, that's where your heart's going to be. That's all. That's, that's it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where are you investing? The sin they embraced, the suffering they endured, and then lastly here, the security they evaded in verses 7 to 10. The security they evaded. See, it's the same story. The the oppression of Israel became so great. They suffered so much, and it took years, right? I mean, the enemy was able to steal years of their stuff. And finally they said, there's got to be a different way to go about this, guys. Well, let's cry out to the Lord again. And that's what they did. Verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the account of the Midianites, guess what? The Lord answered. God heard their cry. God always hears our cry. Don't ever forget that. No matter how many steps we have taken to run from the Lord or run away from the Lord, it only takes one step back. Just one. Um, no matter how many times we fail him, no matter how many times we turn, turn away from the Lord to our sin, because that's what we're doing when we do it. When, we're, when we reach the end and we say, you know what, this was a stupid mistake. I shouldn't have done this. And we turn back to the Lord. He's always there to forgive. Always, always 
He receives us. He restores us when we repent and turn back to him in faith. And that's what he did with Israel. I mean, that's his promise to his people, right? We just read it, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And not just forgive us the sins that we confess, but cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a statement of fact. As a child of God, we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. There's no sin that we can ever do here in our physical life that will override God's judgment of righteous, just. Nothing. If we're truly in Christ, he has forgiven all of our sin. He has paid. He not only forgave, he, the reason he could forgive them was because he paid for them. He paid the debt. It would be like going to court and you had a $50,000 fine. And if you couldn't pay the $50,000 fine to the judge, then you would have to go to jail. You're guilty. Do you have the $50,000, Mr. Converse? No, I don't. Well, you're going to have to go to jail then. Well, wait a minute. I'll pay Steve's fine. Here's $50,000. At that point, the judge doesn't care where the money comes from. Hey, all right. You willing to pay his fine? Yep, okay. All right. Hey, your fine was, fine was paid. You can go. That's what Christ did for us. Because he, he hears our cry. But here, in this situation, you notice he didn't hear, he heard their cry, but he didn't, he didn't hand them a judge. He didn't hand them a deliverer right away, did he? Who'd he send? He sent an unnamed prophet. We don't know who this is. He sent a, a prophet... It says, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, verse 8, with a message, with a word from heaven. See, God doesn't always just rescue us from our problem when we come back and we repent and we confess. Sometimes he lets us wallow in it a little bit to help us remind us, I think, that, you know, just remember how bad it is down here. You don't want to be here again. And this prophet's message was designed to remind them of who they were as God's people. He wanted to remind them. It was a message designed to confront their failure in light of God's faithfulness. And the prophet's message was designed to remind them of how good God had been to them. And look at what he says. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up out of Egypt... Let's take a little history lesson here, Israel. I brought you out of the house of slavery. Verse 9, And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you. And then I gave you their land. So he's, he's showing them very clearly that, look, I am a God who cares about you Greatly, And I'm willing to go to the extent of all these things to make sure that you understand that. Remember who you are in Christ. Remind yourself what Christ has done for you. That God has saved you. That God has forgiven your sin. It's not because of who you are. It's because of who his son is. It was designed to remind them how they should have been living 
because of their relationship with the Lord. And sometimes we need to be reminded about that. They're reminded of God's deliverance, verses 8 and 9. God moved in the supernatural power to deliver Israel from the bondage of Egypt. God gave them a deliverer named Moses. He demonstrated his power over the Egyptian gods and all that through all the plagues that fell on their land. Remember all that? God brought them out in great power. He even parted the Red Sea, allowed them to walk across on dry ground. I mean, if, if for nothing else, they should have been faithful to God because of his grace and his salvation in their own lives. Bottom line, they should have been faithful, but they weren't. And God's grace has even, I think, been more real in our own lives when you stop and think about it. Uh, I've never had a sea part for me. God's never parted a sea for me. Uh, He's never sent plagues upon my enemies, but, but he did give his son on the cross for me and for you if you're his follower. He did put me in his plan before the world ever began as one of his chosen children. He did love me in spite of my own sin, but God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. He did save me when I wasn't even looking for him. (laughs) And he changed my life just because I called on him by faith. He didn't say, well, I'll change your life if you do A, B, and C. No, he he said, just cry out to me. And for that reason alone, he deserves my faithfulness. He deserves our faithfulness. He deserves our love and our devotion. And yet, we live in a, a world where people within the church unfortunately act just the opposite. They have to be coddled in order, in order for them to even to come to church. If they don't get their way all the time, they're upset. They're whining, they're griping, they're complaining about the life that they have. They have to be begged in order to serve this God who saved them. I mean, we need to be reminded I was on my way to hell when his grace touched my heart and he saved me. I mean, what an incredible thing. He should have, from that point on, my absolute, undivided attention. What do you want, Lord? Just tell me what you want. I mean, does the fact that he saved you mean anything to you? I hope it does. It should mean everything. Well, they're also reminded of God's deeds in verse 9. We mentioned those. We read through them. Not only did God deliver them from Egypt, God went with them every step of the way. He drove out their enemies. He fed them. He led them. He never failed them, even when they failed him. He gave them a good land, and he blessed them far beyond what they deserved. I mean, they should have been faithful for him, if for nothing else, just because of the blessings that he applied to their lives. 
I mean, we need to stop. We need to look around. We need to look back. We need to look up. We need to look within our own hearts. Because all around us, every one of us, we could probably go on for the rest of the night on how God has blessed, provided blessings in our lives. He has been so good to us. He's blessed us materially, physically, financially, best of all, spiritually. He's been faithful to us, and he's, he's given us the best. And I believe we ought to be faithful to him just out of a sense of gratitude for everything that he's done for us. I mean, we wouldn't have anything if it wasn't for the Lord. We wouldn't have anything. James chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Look at your blessings. Look at how God has blessed your life. You know, that hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one. I think we need to do that. Time and now and then. And, and really sit down and write out, how has God blessed me this week? And we're not just talking money here. We're talking time. We're talking resources. We're talking preserving our life. Hasn't the Lord been good to you? Sure he has. But we have to ask that question. Doesn't he deserve our best in return? I mean, even if he took everything away that we have, like he did with Job, remember? Job, the story of Job. And yet, Job ended in the right place, right? Hey, Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's been so good to us. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Don't presume on his kindness, on his patience with us. Don't take advantage of it. And then in verse 10 here, they're reminded of God's demands. God reminds them that he's not the God of the pagans. <laughs> he's their God. Verse 10, And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. That's why you're fearing. That's basically what he's saying. His words remind us here that God is a jealous God. Jealousy that has no sin attached to it. See, we think of jealousy as sinful behavior. That's not always the case. You can be jealous of something in a God-honoring way. God is jealous of our relationship with him. And he won't stand idly by when you trash that relationship. He's not going to allow those who he has redeemed to go after these foreign pagan gods. Exodus 20, verse 5 says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. 34, 14 says, For you shall not worship no other God, 
for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, <laughs> is a jealous God. See, Israel's made to see that they are suffering because they failed to keep what? God first in their life. Remember the churches of Revelation, one of them was condemned for what? Leaving their first love. You remember that? Don't allow that to happen. They allowed things to come, to creep in, things that were even blessings probably, his hand. They crept in and uh, they, they, they took the place of God in their lives. Or at least they got ahead of him in line. And now they were paying this high price for their low living. And don't think God has changed. God is still a jealous God even today. If he's chosen you in Jesus Christ, you're saved, you're saved by his grace, you've entered into a saving relationship with him and he with you, he expects you to live for him alone. He does not expect you that you will live for yourself. He doesn't expect that. He doesn't expect that you will live for your things or your material blessings that he blesses you with. He expects that you will walk with him, that you will love him, that you will live according to his will and not your own. And when you do that, guess what? He will bless you greatly, the Bible says. But when you don't, there's a big price to pay. If you belong to the Lord, you can expect to pay a high price when you live below his standards. Revelation 3.19 says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Or Hebrews chapter 12 it says, My son, do not regard, verse 5, lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. There's a lot of believers today, so-called believers, professing believers, who are completely given over to their sin and living like the devil every day. And they're saying, look at how God is blessing me. He's not disciplining me. Ha, ha, ha. Well, maybe they're not one of his children. <laughs> Verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. In other words, when discipline comes from the hand of God, it's always clothed with holiness. It never, it's, not, it's not sinful discipline. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Remember when you were little and you got spanked or you got in trouble? You know, nobody likes that. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands 
and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. So you have to look at your own life right now and you have to ask the question, who's first in your life? Is there anything or anyone before the Lord Jesus Christ? If there is, you're headed for trouble. What price are you willing to pay for your sin is another question we have to ask. What will our own disobedience cost if it continues? We ask that you would just examine your own hearts and uh, be faithful to him each and every day and ask the Lord to show you where you need to be spending time to examine these things and God will bless you as a result. Let's pray and then we'll close out. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love and your care. Thank you for this lesson in Judges chapter 6 and how Israel once again fell by the wayside and sinned against you. And, and yet, Lord, um, when they cried out to you, it took them a couple years there, but they cried out to you and they were broken. And Lord, that's how you have to be when you cry out to God. You have to be broken. You have to be understanding that you're in need of a Savior. And so, Lord, whether it's someone here tonight or someone listening to the tape or whatever, the audio, Lord, we pray that you would... Um, minister your grace to their hearts that you would make it very apparent and very clear that each one of us is steeped in our sin without hope we're in the the quicksand and the sludge of sin and we can't save ourselves and so we cry out to you lord be merciful to me a sinner and your glorious helping hand reaches down and grabs us and sets us on solid ground changes our heart, forgives us of our sin, and works on making us whom you desire us to be the rest of our earthly life, but you also guarantee us all eternity. One day we will be with you in glory, in a glorified state, and we won't have to worry about sin. But right now it is our, it is our fight every moment of every day that we be vigilant and diligent in it to allow you to have the victory on our behalf. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.